Hello, listener, and welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to reduce the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, co-host Kevin King and I will talk with our good friend and colleague Aaron Lyon about human-centered design, beer, leadership, beer, the Simpsons, adapter-focused implementation strategies, and more beer. You'll get to hear who inspires him and what his two favorite IS papers are. As always, if you like the show, the best thing you can do is to tell your friends and colleagues, tweet about it, post it on your socials, and cite us in your articles. If you want to talk to us, we're on Twitter. I'm at that IS podcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. We had such a great time talking to Aaron. I think you're really going to like today's show. Without further ado, let's get started. All right. Well, I am here with Dr. Kevin King and Dr. Aaron Lyon. Many of you probably know Dr. Lyon. He is the co-director of the School Mental Health Assessment Research and Training Center, or the SMART Center at the University of Washington, the co-director of the University of Washington Alacrity Center. He also directs the Research Institute for Implementation Science and Education, or RISE. He's the Associate Editor of Implementation Research and Practice. He's a master acronym maker, a master home brewer, a runner, a father. What else? What am I missing here? I can't think of another thing I do. (laughs) That's it, huh? (laughs) Well, we're so excited to have you on the show today. Uh, Love love that you're here, and I think you're just going to have so much to offer. Um, But I want to start off with like probably the most important question of of the day, and so um, I hope you're ready for this, is that we really need names for this podcast. Like, do you have any ideas for possible names that we could that we could use? Let's see. I love that the first and most important question is, I have a question for you. What do you think of me? Um, <laughs> so you, I had a little heads up. So I just took a few minutes and reflected on this a little bit. Um, so I came up with a couple of different things that you can take or leave. The first is implementation science informational telecast of interest to someone, or is it IS? (laughs) Nice, I like that. Then from that, which was a little more general, I started to think about implementation constructs and what we're all, all, you know, always talking about um, within the field. So I came up with generally affable podcast for science or gaps. Um, buddies recording implementation and delivering a great experience bridge yeah you always have to have a the the bridge acronym acronym always works always yeah and implementation podcast assessing current trends impact impact nice not to be confused with the impact center that we're both affiliated with mike which is not an acronym even though it's not an acronym right maybe that that could be an acronym I do have a, I protest that a little bit whenever I write the impact center, I don't write it as a, I don't write it in all capital letters. Yeah, that's fair. I just want to pause and bask in the glory of Aaron, your ability to create acronyms, acronyms 
Um, I, I, I've always admired it. I think it's one of your greatest strengths as a scientist and a human being, whether that means that, you know, that's an extraordinary thing or whether everything else you do is just sort of below average for a person. <laughs> I, I just... <laughs> I just think it's extraordinary. I, I, in my lab, which is called the RAD lab, the Regulation, Affect, and Development Lab, we spent like two years of meetings trying to come up with acronyms, and that's the best we could do. And that was after we were called the Psych Lab, the Puget Sound Youth and Context Lab. So as someone who has invested so much time for so little output for acronyms, I'm, I'm just constantly blown away how good you are at that. And maybe I can start, you're good at acronyms. What do you think is the value of that besides comedic value? I mean, comedic value first and foremost. Of course, always. But uh, a colleague of mine once said, the mark of a great acronym is you forget what it stands for, but you remember it and, um, and keep coming back to it and whatever sort of entity or project or something like that it's reflecting. Um, so I think that sort of staying power, maybe it's availability heuristic that is probably facilitated by a good acronym all of that stuff that makes something digestible and memorable. Oh, I was just going to make a joke that I'm pretty sure all that availability heuristic research never replicated, but ah, probably not. <laughs> Except for the acronyms. Except for we, the acronyms. We, we talked once about Aaron about um, just the power of naming something, right? And that yep. once you apply a acronym or a name to something that's kind of nebulous, suddenly it becomes a thing in people's minds. Yep. Whether it's a project or center acronym, whether it's a method. The exactly. power of naming. Exactly. I think what is it, do you, do you have any to... sort of fav favorite acronyms from your from your past that you've created? I mean, I've always loved the Smart Center, which is way better than the um, as we were iterating on that a little bit. The first one we arrived at, which I don't think we've ever stated publicly, but it was the Dish Center, dissemination and implementation in school-based health. Not so catchy. <laughs> not a great, not a great acronym. That's really um, bad. Sometimes it really, you, yeah, <laughs> it's, sometimes iteration helps. Yeah. Acronyms are just prototypes until you land. Failure, you know, <laughs> we learn from our failures. Yeah. Uh, you know, one other was an like acronym within an acronym um, because we created CERC, of course, the Society for Implementation Research Collaboration. And then we conceptualized something that never was funded, but it was the um, CERC Training Institute for Collaborative Science, or STICS. So it was an acronym within an acronym. That's amazing. It's just acronyms all the way down. Yeah. It, you know, it actually, I mean, I think we were going to, we, you know, we wanted to talk to you, one, because we figure you're an easy mark um, for us, but also, you know, you've been doing this really interesting work on human-centered design, and it seems like acronyms is a way of, you know, making design accessible and thinking about how design features matter in, in, in folks, you know, as psychologists, we often don't think about design. We just sort of throw stuff out there mm -hmm. and hope it works. Do you want to maybe, you know, get us started in thinking what got you thinking about um, human centered design and, and design around and just, I mean, just give us an overview. Cause I feel like Mike and I are, we just see this from the outside. We've read mm -hmm. your papers and seen your work, but yeah, help, help us in the audience understand where you're coming from with that. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so maybe just to define it, we often define human-centered design as an approach that grounds product development, kind of whatever product you might be developing, whether it's digital, tangible, psychosocial in nature, in information about the people and settings where it's going to be used. 
Um, I originally got into human-centered design through my interest in digital technologies, though. And I wrote a K award um, back, you know, as a postdoc, as I was sort of transitioning between postdoc and faculty um, that was focused on measurement feedback systems, sort of digital measurement feedback systems to support measurement-based care. And I ended up writing into that a the certificate program that's offered um, here at the University of Washington through the Department of Human Centered Design and Engineering. And it's a kind of year-long certificate program. And I went into that sort of thinking it was going to be relevant, um, you know, just to my work in digital technologies. And it was, but like it also just sort of blew my mind and changed my worldview to a certain extent in terms of the broader applications. Um, so it's sort of through that that I have come to think about all the different ways that human-centered design and implementation science can be, um, you know, complementary and connected to one another. Because there's so much like overlap and so much sort of, there's um, there's alignment in terms of some ultimate goals. And then there's sort of nice complementarity in terms of how each field tends to get there. Because both human-centered design and implementation science are about, you know, how to get people to adopt new innovations, right? And they're both focused on solving real world problems. And they both sort of recognize that there's a lot of kind of people um, who might have a stake in that, right? Um, and are ultimately interested in individual behavior and the behavior of particular individuals and whether they adopt something or continue to use it. But they totally like go about it differently. Um, because implementation science is all about organizations and systems and often changing those organizations and systems. Um, you know, we have things like Greg Aaron's loci um, implementation strategy, um, leadership and organizational change for implementation, which is just like an example of sort of an inner setting oriented implementation strategy that's like changing through leadership organizational climate. And that doesn't necessarily happen. With, with just a few exceptions within human-centered design. Human-centered design is about understanding the organization and the sort of context in that way. But unless you're really getting into um, like systems engineering and some parts of service design, um, which are pretty kind of small corner of the overall human-centered design landscape, you are um, not necessarily changing those systems. And on the flip side, implementation science, at least historically, doesn't change the intervention. It changes. It, it's, um, you know, we, at least, you know, until a few years ago, fidelity uber alles, you know, fidelity, fidelity, fidelity. Now I think people are recognizing that there's a lot more, um, a lot of room for strategic adaptation and adaptation happens. And human-centered design is about changing the thing and like making sure that the thing is changed in ways that are going to make people want to use it. So if I could, I was going to ask you that, but you sort of answered the question. It sounds like, you know, one of the things that the human-centered design perspective brings is that we can't, don't need to, or maybe even shouldn't treat our interventions um, as, uh, you know, untouchable. That, and in fact, this, pro you know, for any inter intervention designers out there, this probably reflects um, something that they, they may know in their hearts that when we design studies, when we design things, there's a certain point at which we are confident in our decisions. And then after that, it's arbitrary. 
So like we're certainly, we, we want to measure something in a certain way, but do we use five liquid options or seven liquid options? We're, we're certain that we want to cover, a, you know, an amount of content in across therapy sessions. We want to sort of cover 10 topics, but we're not confident in how much time we have to dedicate to each or how much time is the right amount of time, how much time is too little. At some point, a lot of our design decisions are arbitrary in terms of what we, you know, how confident we are. And it sounds like maybe the human-centered design perspective is saying, okay, maybe there's room for adaptation. Maybe we can think of what, I mean, maybe you tell us what, what are the kinds of, you know, information, what are the kinds of things that that perspective brings to interventions that might cause people to adapt them or to, to uh, change them? Yeah. Well, I mean, and even within, you know, the implementation, maybe not necessarily intervention science quite yet. Um, I think there's just a recognition that, modification and adaptation happens. It isn't a matter of whether or not, like if you're actually implementing something in a novel context or a real world context, it happens, right? It's not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's going to happen. It can happen, you know, prospectively and you can make some of those decisions about how you're going to adapt something or it can happen reactively. Um, it's probably gonna happen reactively to one extent or another anyway. But one of the things we're trying to figure out in the UW Alacrity Center is whether we can limit those reactive adaptations by more strategically engaging in those proactive adaptations. And but that could be all manner of kind of components of an intervention. Like if we're talking about our complex sort of psychosocial interventions or psychotherapies and things like that, you know, it can be part of the actual like content elements that are going to be adapted. It can be um, sort of the way those content elements are organized and the way decisions are made, whether there's like, um, whether that's like measurement-based care or whether there's some sort of um, sequencing built in or even kind of decision-making, you know, rubric or, or schematic for delivering different parts of intervention content. It can be, people often think about this when they think about design and redesign of interventions. They just sort of think about those artifacts, like maybe it's a handout or a job aid or something like that. And those can certainly be redesigned as well. But those usually ref reflect like actual practices and social interactions. And at the end of the day, we're, when we're redesigning things, we're usually, when, when we're talking about psychosocial interventions, talking about redesigning some of those social interactions that may be reflected in some kind of visual or tangible way. Yeah, you know, I think about, when I think about psychosocial interventions that are always gonna be multi-component, I can't think of any that don't have at least, and I guess it depends on how you define components. And uh, when I think about adaptations, you know, one of the things I try to do is simplify this as, as crystally clear as possible um, by, um, well, the example that may be given a lot, I don't know in human-centered design, but the example is like, let's say you have an ax, right? Made up of two components, right? A handle and a head, right? And you decide to change the wooden handle on that ax for a metal handle because you want something that's gonna be stronger and less likely to break. And the question that somebody would ask is, is, it, is that the same ax? And in some ways it is because it serves the same function Right. Mm -hmm. But in other ways, it's not because half of what made up that axe is now completely different. Or maybe you decide to change the head out for a two-headed two axe or what, what have you. And actually, when you put the two head on, then actually you're changing the function a little bit. So it is a different axe, but it's also the same axe <laughs> because it's still serving the same type of function it was before. And I think with psychotherapeutic interventions, like it's, it's, it's some these things are pretty similar. I'm kind of curious from your perspective, from human-centered design perspective, is there a process um, 
for identifying like which of the components are essential, what functions they serve, how you can make the best choices about how to change components or modify or adapt or remove those components. Uh, and then uh, how you can determine how that's actually modified, modifying the impact of the intervention. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to go about doing it. Um, I mean, one thing that makes me think of is um, sort of at least two, there's probably more um, ways of thinking about different aspects of interventions and what's important, right? We often hear about core components and adaptable periphery, not that we ever truly know what those are. Um, but that's something that gets talked about a lot and has an implementation science. Um, increasingly, I think people have found pretty compelling um, the notion of form and function, um, you know, as spearheaded by people like Brian Mittman, um, where it's really what is the goal and what is this doing and how is it manifesting as the form? And I think that that is more compelling than simply talking about the different sort of core components and adaptable periphery that might manifest those functions or not. When trying to figure out sort of the what to adapt or even what to test if you're doing like a user testing or usability testing kind of approach to it, um, there's a lot of different things that could that could weigh into that and things that you could draw from in order to make some of those decisions. I mean, one, good old theory, right? And are there things that might theoretically be most critical? You know, that's not necessarily tested, especially in the context of a particular intervention, um, but it can be a good starting point. Um, other things, of course, even though most interventions haven't done this, you know, the elaborate unpacking studies to figure out what are the proximal mechanisms of action that different components have. So that's another way. Um, something that we've also done in some of our work where we've been trying to identify different components of something to figure out what to test, because you can't test it all. When you have something like a complex psychosocial intervention or implementation strategy, that's like going and saying that you want to test the entire Windows operating system. You have to test different functions and pieces of it. Um, so what we'll often do is conduct a task analysis, like a hierarchical task analysis, where we're specifying the different pieces of the intervention. And we sort of will generate that and iterate on it a little bit as a group. And then once we have all those tasks and subtasks, sort of the components that have independent meaning, that compose a strategy or an intervention, then we'll do these kind of task prioritization ratings to see really, and it's really two dimensions that will have experts um, largely within our um, team rate the different tasks on. And that's the likelihood that people might run into issues or errors when they're trying to make use of it. And the other is the criticality of that particular task to the overall sort of like functioning of the strategy or intervention or something like that. Then we can begin to prioritize things that we'd be looking into. We haven't necessarily used that to prioritize things for sort of what must be retained or what must not be adapted, um, but that could be one potential output as well. It, it seems like you, th this kind of approach requires a tremendous amount of content expertise or or expertise with the intervention, right? Because you're asking people, I, I you know, I to as an aside, I agree with you. We, you know, as much as we want to rely on good old theory, usually good old theory is actually pretty vague. 
and not and kind of difficult to test. And the other side of it, the unpacking studies, like you said, they're rare in part because they're difficult. And if we actually want to advance science, we can't sort of, uh, you know, if we want to advance our grant writing and grant getting careers, we could write grant after grant, unpacking and testing mechanism after mechanism. And but if we really want to, you know, we could spend 50 years doing that. But we want to advance, you know, people's lives. We, we the the progress at which we do those studies is way too slow. So I, I've been thinking, and it seems like you're answering this, it, it, that you need a lot of expertise, both either on the intervention content, what it's like for people to identify, like, you know, where where do, where do people run into barriers? And then it also sounds like when you're adapting to a local context, you're also going to need experts there too, right? Can you talk about that, about how people bring, you know, how that those adaptations come about that are like, oh yeah, in this primary care office, this isn't going to work because of X, Y, Z, and you're going to have to think about it differently. Is that is that something you're also thinking about? Yeah, I mean, we often think of maybe three, when we're engaging processes like this, three different types of expertise. There's expertise in the innovation and sort of how it works, what its the underlying theory might be, um, what its proximal mechanisms might be. There's expertise in the sort of context and needs of users. Um, and there's expertise in kind of good design heuristics and design processes. So there's, you know, upwards of triple expertise that people engaging in different pieces of this might ideally have. People don't necessarily need to have all of them. And there are different ways to bring in those different kind of categories of, of expertise. I would say that human-centered design is probably best at having ways of bringing in the sort of contextual user expertise, or at least gathering information from people in a destination context, right? Whether it's through observation, whether it's from us through usability testing, whether it's through engaging in sort of a collaborative design process um, and doing that kind of co-design in the moment. Um, and there's often, you know, uh, an assumption that people are coming in with a certain amount of design expertise, um, just as a, you know, just because they're able to, you know, understand these methods and are prepared to apply them. Um, so I think, and I think it's important to include all of those types of expertise, if at all possible. Sometimes the the one that might not, that might be least interestingly, that might be least likely to happen by default could be expertise in the actual intervention itself. But as long as you build a team right and you are, you know, whether you're um, collaborating with an intervention developer or purveyor or someone who knows that backward and forward, whether they're a core member of the design team or whether they're sort of there as a check on some of the design decisions that the team might be making, uh, you know, there's different ways to do it. I wonder if you could give us just a quick example of a way that this, you know, maybe not outline the whole process, but contrast sort of a way that an intervention or something was, you know, proposed and then how you, you know, using this process, you make a change that fits the context better and maybe makes it more effective or more, you know, more implementable. Mm -hmm. I mean, so we have a method that we call the Cognitive Walkthrough for Implementation Strategies, or SWISS. And it's um, meant to be a sort of resource efficient process for evaluating the usability of implementation strategies, sort of complex, you know, socially mediated implementation strategies and figuring out 
where sticking points might be, what usability issues it might have that then sort of drive redesign um, with the goal of making it more uh, implementable, more scalable, um, aligned with uh, local contextual needs, that sort of thing. So we have, we, we've done that in one project um, that I think you know a little bit about, Kevin, uh, with a post training consultation strategy, right? Oh yeah, very familiar with those data. And we, in, after we had initially developed um, an online training and measurement-based care for school-based clinicians, um, then we developed, um, iteratively developed our post-training consultation strategy. Then we rolled it out and we did a, a randomized trial. As we were developing it, we used the Swiss method um, for the consultation strategy. And we had sort of the beginning components of the consultation strategy to begin with. And we did some of our um, task identification and prioritization and built these scenarios and tasks that we thought were representative of where participants in the consultation strategy could go wrong and where they and where they shouldn't go wrong because it was critical to the sort of function of the strategy. So we did that and we took them through a through these um, cognitive walkthrough sessions. I won't get necessarily get into the details of those, um, but we identified a whole set of usability problems. We identified 21 distinct usability problems in that study. Um, and they were things like, um, you know, during initial case presentations, clinicians tended to focus on barriers to applying measurement-based care that were distracting from important topics and, and discussion and decreasing their motivation to, Im to implement measurement-based care. Um, and it was other things, um, some of which were a little more practical, that there might be inadequate on-site technology, um, or that they were unprepared to sort of identify solutions to the barriers that they were um, bringing up and, and experiencing. So there were a number, there were a lot of different things that we saw as usability issues, some of which, you know, were kind of high severity in that they were likely to disrupt um, the actual use of the implementation strategy and its effectiveness, um, some of which were, were sort of less severe. Um, and what we did was we put together a number of different kind of redesigned solutions based on those barriers and, and plenty of others. Some of these included things like designing these both clear directions at the outset for sort of case presentation processes. And we even made sure that we built in explicit targeted praise from our expert consultants for participating clinicians surrounding things like brevity. We even built a set of troubleshooting tips for consultants to use in the moment in order to not get stymied in you know, problem admiration and talking about barriers and things like that. We redesigned sort of how we prepared our consultants and other participants surrounding the, the training platform and how they were even interfacing with, um, I, I don't re remember if we use Zoom or a different sort of online, you know, video call. It's hard to imagine anything but Zoom, but this was before the pandemic. So we had to kind of make sure that they were well prepared that way. And we even built in ways to set clear expectations surrounding case presentations and how to create just like a more collaborative, safe atmosphere. Um, so those are just a few things that led 
that, that flowed from the usability issues that we identified and were ultimately sort of um, reflected in our redesigned implementation strategy. No, so that, that's super, super interesting to hear, Aaron, and I'm kind of reflecting on a couple of different things when you described that process. The first is that maybe in years past, if intervention developers heard that therapists or implementers heard that therapists weren't doing their intervention correctly or were struggling with certain things or having what you would call usability problems, they might, the, the, I think the first thing they might jump to is, oh, well, we need to improve our training or our coaching mm -hmm. or our supervision. Right. Mm -hmm. But what you're talking about is actually changing aspects of the intervention or the way the content is provided to them or the structures that they use in order to deliver the intervention is done in a way that's less likely to result in errors and minimizes errors. And I really like the way that kind of respects the therapists as human beings rather than saying that really what we need to do is sort of download more knowledge into them. Because mm -hmm. one thing I kind of was reflecting on, but the other aspect that I'm reflecting on that I think is related is just kind of the inherent sort of power differentials that are mm -hmm. in many of these situations. And when we as implementers or researchers or implementer uh, intervention developers create something, oftentimes, you know, there's, there's a bit of a power differential where therapists, again, are sort of expected to do the thing that we're telling them to do. User-centered design is bringing them into that decision-making process. I'm curious if there's any uh, aspects of user-centered design that kind of in intends to even increase that power differential even further or decrease that power differential even further, right? And so, because still, even with user-centered design, therapists are still kind of a target of study to some extent. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that we're kind of collecting the usability problems from. Just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I have many thoughts. Um, I mean, first, I think it's totally true and in some ways understandable that some implementation strategies like let's augment our training essentially have to be augmented to overcome intervention design problems you know to one extent or another there's always going to need to be some implementation strategies and they'll probably need to be relatively robust no matter how well designed your intervention is we're probably never going to get to the point where we have sort of self-embedding interventions that are just so well designed that they don't even need implementation strategies. But often, one of the things I think you were pointing out is that our implementation strategies inadvertently get sort of cranked up a few notches to overcome some problematic design when redesigning the intervention could actually probably lessen the need for implementation strategies that are quite so intensive or quite so expensive. The power differentials question and point, I think, is a very good one. Um, I actually have a paper up, and I want to read a quote from it. This is uh, Style Shields et al., 2022, from Frontiers in Digital Health, um, that speaks a bit to power differentials, at least as they exist even within human-centered design, aside from whether human-centered design has sort of good ways, which I can talk about in a minute, of reducing them. What they wrote was... Despite human-centered design's framing as a collaborative approach with end users, power structures are insidious to its practice history. Indeed, the potential for the development of the following power structure is rampant in human-centered design. A designer, often a cisgender, heterosexual white male, attempting to, quote, uncover the needs of a marginalized user and or community to create a product. Marginalized users and communities may often have 
already have strong notions of what might work for them and do not need these ideas to be uncovered for them. And I think that's a powerful reflection on human-centered design and frankly, probably many fields as well. But that really calls out a lot of the power structures that continue to be present in the field. And, you know, here I am, you know, the design guy talking to you, described completely in that quote as, you know, the representative or ambassador of human-centered design. So that certainly gives me a lot of pause when considering ways that human-centered design may or may not be equipped to address power structures, even though I completely agree that the this way of thinking and this sort of less user blaming and more user empowering by creating something that's a better fit is something that can help to equalize some of those power structures, but probably not all. And like anything, it's probably better at equalizing the power structures for people who look like the designers. Um, even if they're in a different role. But there are things, I mean, if human-centered design is kind of at its core, supposed to be a set of processes that can allow design teams to build sort of empathy and understanding for their users and construct things like personas that are kind of data-driven archetypes of um, potential users in order to facilitate that empathy. I think that there are opportunities to decrease, but certainly not eliminate those kinds of power structures. You know, I love that answer because it reminds me of something that I think, you know, other people have observed frequently about a lot of tech products, right? That a lot of um, tech solutions like Uber and DoorDash and, you know, other techs are things that, uh, you know, young white men need when they move out of their mom's house and you know, start <laughs> yeah. having a professional job. Like they need someone to bring them food and give them a ride and, you know, you know, send them a box of the month, an interesting thing, you know, or remind them to get razors and just put them on a subscription, you know. Uh, that, you know, that we, a lot of times we design solutions for ourselves. And I think what you're arguing is that by sort of taking a systematic approach to design, we start thinking about who are the actual people who are going to consume our end product beyond just ourselves to whom the design solutions come naturally. Yeah, absolutely true. And I mean, it's, it's a natural sort of trap to fall into to design things for people like ourselves. Um, and that's why human-centered design um, is sort of so explicit about user identification and articulating who your users are. Because in the absence of that, you know, product developers, whether they're creating digital technologies or anything else, underestimate um, user diversity in their design processes and default to their own perspectives. There's some evidence that explicitly identifying users um, and user needs can help to correct that bias, but it's a big bias that's in all of this. And it happens yeah. in our social interventions where we create these complex interventions that brilliant graduate students happen to be able to like figure out and build in some workarounds and we're able to um, implement effectively. But when you move out of that sort of very tight, motivated expert space and you start moving into large scale deployment of anything, like that's not going to fly. Yeah, I was I was just having this, you know, this discussion with a collab, uh, collaborator this morning about a, a statistical tutorial that we're writing. Um, you know, and, and their argument was, well, we want to make sure this is relevant. Um, we get this correct and we say things uh, and we say, hey, you know, uh, say things correctly and 
say to the user, hey, user, in the end, you're going to have to be an expert and you're going to have to make expert decisions. Expert decisions. You can't just rely on defaults. And my, you know, the point I made back was like what you said, it's a population health question. It's not just an individual responsibility question. How do we design, you know, whether it's statistical software or an intervention that is maximally usable, that's going to nudge people to do the right thing and do it effectively in you know, for the most people possible to do the most good, assuming that most people are not going to sort of do it the way we think and think carefully about how people actually are going to implement these things. Yeah, I, I have a follow-up question to this. You know, I, I think all this stuff is really cool and exciting. And imagine, you know, um, uh, for our listener, let's think about the end users of this podcast, right? So it'll be, you know, our, our basically our parents and our probably not even our spouses. Um, uh, but you know, but let's imagine there is some unfortunate researcher who um, is listening to this podcast and um, they've made it all the way to, this, to the point of this question and they're excited about human-centered design. And, you know, if they wanted to use a simple human-centered design approach without going full human-centered design, without becoming an expert, where, where is a place for them to start? What's something folks could try out? What's something folks could think about? I mean, I think there's a lot of places to start and certainly use of human-centered design doesn't need to be an all or nothing kind of thing. Um, I mean, for better or worse, there's a whole lot of sort of borrowing bits and pieces that goes on within implementation. Sometimes implementation scientists are a little too quick perhaps to borrow from other fields in ways that can be a little cursory. But, but that said, I do think that there are plenty of ways to engage in pieces of these processes, especially if you think about maybe touch points within uh, a development or, or redesign process for how you can do some of that kind of like initial information gathering and learning about user needs and especially sort of just thinking if there's one thing and this sort of builds on what we were just talking about that's to me seems to be one of the most important user-centered design human-centered design processes is thinking so clearly about who are your primary users, like those people you're designing for, who are your secondary users, like people who it's you know important to satisfy the needs of as long as it doesn't interfere with your ability to satisfy the needs of your primary users, and who are your non-users or negative users. Because you know, as I'm very fond of saying, and I certainly didn't come up with this phrase, if you're designing for everyone, you're designing for no one. And even that process of thinking very clearly through who you're designing for first, who you're designing for second, and who you're not designing for at all, I think can be really impactful at the outset and will shape a lot of the decisions that you make, um, regardless of what sort of information gathering processes you're going to be engaging in. I mean, I guess another one, I often differentiate between usability testing and focus groups, because some people can conflate those. And focus groups are great and have all sorts of uses, and I use them all the time, but they're not usability testing. Usability testing involves introducing someone, something to someone and ideally having them try to do something with it and then watching where they're successful and where they're not successful. And that typically doesn't happen within focus groups. Um, focus groups are about, tell me your opinions. Do you like this? Do you not like this? And that's not usability testing. Usability testing is, here's a thing, try to do something with it. How is this not meeting your needs? It's very different, yeah, when you ask somebody to imagine, like, what, what do you prefer? What do you think is going to work versus, hey, do something with this, see what happens. It's that, like, revealed preference, reveal, you know, revealed behavior. 
are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And there are ways to approximate it, right? To maybe um, cognitive walkthroughs are sometimes done in ways where someone's not actually engaging in the behavior, but they're sort of projecting themselves into a particular scenario and whether they think they'll be able to accomplish a particular task, which is still, you know, it's it's one level further removed from doing that task, but it's much more proximal than, what do you think of this? All right, well, I think we're going to transition now to a little game that we have for you. Uh, we don't have a name for this game. Let's call it Implementation Quotation. I don't have a name for it. Anyway, we're gonna have, we have a little game for you. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to provide you some quotes. And just as a heads up, many of the quotes are about two of your favorite things, about or from two of your favorite things. And we just need you to identify the person that said the quote. And every... Uh, Every quote you identify correctly, you'll get a point. And if you get most of them correct, you can have um, Kevin King write the uh, signature line on your email. Uh, The first quote is, we're going to throw you a softball here. Ah, beer. The cause of and solution to all of life's problems. That would, of course, be Homer Simpson. Very good. Very good. You can't be a real country unless you have beer and an airline. It helps if you have some kind of football team or some nuclear weapons, but at the very least, you need a beer. Oh, my God. Who is that? Um, Obviously, I've heard that quote. Frank Zappa? Ooh, very good. Excellent. It's two points points for Aaron. (laughs) Two out of two. Two out of two. All right. Here's one. This one was kind of new to me, but you probably recognize it. When I heated my home with oil, I used an average of 800 gallons a year. I have found that I can keep comfortably warm for an entire winter with slightly over half that quantity of beer. Ooh, I don't know. I don't, yeah. I I feel like I've heard that quote before, but it's not like burned in there with all the others. All right, all right, giving up. That is Dave Barry, that cad. Mm. All right. Hey, I don't want no one in here with their evils of alcohol rap. Uh, most is luck. That's another point for Aaron. Very well good. Wow. What are we at here? Is that three out of four out of five? Three out of four. Three out of four. Three out of four. All right. Here's one. If you get hungry in the middle of the night, there's an open beer in the fridge. Oh. I'm drawing a blank on that one. Is it another Simpsons? It is another Simpsons. Oh, okay. There's a little hint. Yeah. I'm just wondering. I mean, is that Homer, or is it like the one time when Homer crashed at Barney's? Um, <laughs> I think we got to give him a point for that. Yeah, you get a point for that. Yeah, it's Barney, Barney Gumble. Barney Gumble. <laughs> okay. Um, my scotch is a scotch and water. In response to a uh, somebody saying, "I'd like a scotch and water," the response is, "My scotch is a scotch and water." I guess that gives it away. But... My scotch is a scotch and water. Wait, does it give it away? Yes. I wish it gave it away. My scotch is a scotch and water. Groundskeeper Willie? Oh. <laughs> Mo, that's Mo says like again. Oh, it's Mo's again. That's Mo again. Oh, repeats? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. There's going to be repeats. Uh, yeah. There's some tricks in there. Speaking of tricks, God made beer because he loves us and wants us to be happy. Is that Ben Franklin? Yeah, see, that's what everyone thinks, but that's actually not Ben Franklin. In fact, it's no one. It's oh, a, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. A little trick. Ben Franklin actually wrote, Behold the rain which descends from heaven upon our vineyards. There it enters the roots of the vines to be changed into wine, a constant proof that God loves us and loves to see us happy. I still think he's going to get a point for that, though. So uh, that is up to five points for Aaron Lyon. Very, very close to me writing your out-of-office message for the next time you go on vacation. Yeah. All right. All right, Brain, I don't like you and you don't like me. So let's just do this and I'll get back to killing you with beer. Well, that's Homer, of course. All right. Well done. Seven points. Very good. Six very points. good. Look at me. I can't even count. <laughs> I think this is the last one. Is this the last one, Kevin? I think this is the last one. Okay. I'd like a single plum floating in perfume served in a man's hat. Oh, um, was that like, whose drink order was that? Um, it wasn't like Yoko Ono. Or... There's a point for Aaron Lyon. I, I'm not 100% sure it was Yoko Ono, but she was sitting next to Barney Gumble when he ordered a beer and she ordered that. Okay. So yes, I think that's, I think we'll give you points for that. So I, wow. I think you, that's an extraordinary track record, Aaron. Um, I think you won the prize. Next time you go out of the out of the office, I will write your out of office message. I love it. I'll have to make sure that's soon. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I can also give you, if you can think of some travel opportunities, I can give you some, some stock messages ahead of time. Right. Nice job, Aaron. Nice job. Uh, so um, let's launch back into it. Uh, so human-centered design as applied to implementation science is generally been intended to adapt the intervention or implementation strategy, as you were talking about. But a lot of your work also touches on other areas within the consolidated framework, and that can include different aspects of the inner setting or modifications working with individuals. Um, and so I was just wondering if you wanted to talk about uh, any of that a little bit. Specifically, I think I'd love to hear about some of the work that you've done working with leadership and some of the work that you've done working with individuals on their kind of um, attitudes and motivations around adopting implementation or adopting interventions. Sure. Yeah, that's kind of my whole other world and maybe the, the hat that's a little, it's a little closer to my smart center hat than my UW Alacrity Center hat over there and you know we're really focused on development or or sometimes adaptation of implementation strategies and other implementation oriented tools sometimes measurement approaches that some of them have been developed in other settings and we're trying to figure out how they can be best leveraged in schools and some of them are sort of totally novel things that we've developed for schools and as you were sort of talking about with the CIFR, i do think that that's a good way of thinking about some of the different work because we often pick a system level and decide that that system level is going to be the focus of a project. Recognizing that, of course, outside of the context of a research project, you're never just picking one system level and doing things there, but that it's very advantageous, especially if you're trying to isolate effects, to pick a system level. And even if you're evaluating things at other system levels, look to see how your effects 
are on, say, your mechanisms of action within a system level. So some of the examples that you talked about, there's HELM, which is our school-focused adaptation of LOCI, the Leadership for Organizational Change and Implementation Intervention, that leadership-focused implementation strategy that Greg Ahrens and Mark Earhart and colleagues have um, done some fantastic work over the last decade plus surrounding. Um, HELM is, in, in our adaptation of it, we focus on elementary school principals who are going to be implementing kind of universal social emotional learning curricula in their schools or sort of something like that or classroom management approaches, but things that are that are going to be delivered school wide. So HELM is helping educational leaders mobilize evidence. The E is silent and non-existent in our acronym. Take a little poetic license there. That, that actually is one of the signs of an of a excellent acronym, isn't it? That sort of flexibility, right? Um, it's not as bad as grabbing letters from the middle of the word or anything like that. Sometimes you can just conveniently drop the ones that don't help you. Uh, so HELM involves um, a lot of the components of the original LOCI intervention. And Mark Earhart in particular has been a core member of our HELM team um, and helped us sort of maintain our um, consistency with kind of core aspects or at least core functions of the original loci strategy. We have we work with principals and their distributed leadership teams to build leadership development plans all in service of kind of beefing up their strategic implementation leadership behaviors that then in the sort of theory of change at that level, would influence strategic implementation climate, which then kind of trickles down and influences individuals, their attitudes and citizenship behaviors and implementation behaviors. So we have a project funded by the Institute of Education Sciences that's going on right now where we're um, moving toward wrapping up uh, an initial pilot of our adapted version. So that's sort of an example at the inner setting level the sort of immediate um, organizational context in which implementation is happening. Um, and then you also mentioned basis, beliefs, and attitudes for successful implementation in schools. And that's our individual level sort of service provider oriented strategy. So we've done that both with school-based mental health clinicians um, with sort of sometimes which we refer to as original recipe basis. And um, then we have a teacher version, Basis T, or Extra Tasty Crispy. And dude, that's just so good. It's <laughs> so great. I love it. I hope that the training has 11 components. Right. Yeah. Refer to as the herbs and spices. I'll have to check. I'm not sure if we've, uh, yeah, if we took it that far. And what's been really cool about that project. So, you know, we have kept it focused on just the individual level while we, you know, we measure organizational constructs and, and things like that, but more as covariates. Oh, and what we're really trying to do is based on things like the theory of planned behavior and the health action process approach are to influence things like attitudes, perceived social norms, self-efficacy, um, in order to increase um, intervention adoption. Basis is much more circumscribed in time, uh, maybe a more pragmatic strategy than HELM in that it is just a short pre-training experience that gets people motivated prior to going into training on evidence-based practice. Um, and then there's a post-training 
um, sort of planning oriented experience just for, you know, an hour or two, um, where people do sort of action and coping planning, and then go forth. And that's it for basis. Um, we've toyed around a little bit here and there with a, a booster, but that hasn't seemed um, to be as important as that initial experience. So we've been developing basis for a while now, back to 2015, 2016. We're about to launch our fifth basis-oriented grant. And one of the most sort of noteworthy things I think about just the basis research program is because we have these two different versions of basis, we've been able to We've had more opportunities, I would say, to continue to innovate on basis in different ways in these for these different audiences and sort of learn different things that we might not um, have been as likely to learn if we were always focused on exactly the same type of audience. And it sort of freed us up to maybe even iterate a little bit more than we would have. So we've had this kind of back and forth cross-pollination between original recipe and extra tasty crispy as we move toward even more and more kind of pragmatic and streamlined versions. And the, the grant that we are just getting ready to kick off, and Mike, you know this because you are, of course, deeply involved in it, is going to be to further streamline the existing basis strategy and in, in collaboration with folks at the, uh, the Impact Center, which is another um, NIMH-funded P50 Alacrity Center led by Shannon Dorsey and, and Kara Lewis. And um, we're going to be using sort of factorial designs uh, in order to really try to target which components of our strategy are most impactful on some of those like theoretical mechanisms of change I was talking about. It'll be more tasty, more crispy, and we'll discover paprika is not needed. Yeah, that's Because right. paprika is never needed. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Whoever, don't say that to the Hungarians. They'll get offended. But otherwise, who needs the, who needs paprika? So I, I think, uh, you know, I, it's so cool to hear about all the different things you're, you're working on. Uh, you know, and again, I hope our audience can really marvel at the glory of the acronyms and how far you can just, you know, beat them into the ground. Um <laughs> I, I, you know, we'd like to end our interviews with sort of a more open and fun questions, uh, you know, of our guests. And I, we have a few that, that we would start. You know, I, the first question I, I'm interested in is who's a researcher that you look up to, in, either in your specific field or more broadly? And tell us a little bit about why you look up to them. You mean other than you two? Oh, of course. I mean, yeah. He said, he said look up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not feel sad for um let's see I mean, I'll, I'll avoid sort of naming all the sort of uh implementation science bigwigs and things like that who almost like go without saying you know who have been so impactful and getting the field going um you know your enola proctors and and people like that i mean one person i'm gonna list and i think give a bit of a shout out to in part because they are career transitioning out of sort of a more traditional academic role and into a position at NIH. I'm gonna say Kara Lewis, my good friend and colleague, um, who is one of the most sort of quintessential implementation scientists I know. And- I'm sorry, Kara, who, can you spell that? I'm not sure I know who. <laughs> and so I, because I so appreciate her ability to go deep into the very nuanced and very sort of 
rigorous components of implementation and blow things up in ways that other where other people might just be scratching the surface. I mean, I think of CARA particularly these days in the context of mechanisms of implementation strategies, sort of the mechanisms through which they affect implementation outcomes and just being such a strong leader in that domain and a fun person to work with. Um, and so as Kara transitions from her role at um, KPWHRI, the Kaiser Research Institute, um, to NHLBI, I thought she could use a shout out. Very good, very good. I'm curious about, um, you know, if you had to pick, so so I will say this about you, Aaron, not only, I mean, you have a, rem not only do you have this wonderful ability to uh, create acronyms, you also have probably the most encyclopedic knowledge of implementation science um, that I'm aware of. You're, you're constantly available and able to pull uh, citations out of thin air. I'm curious though, if you had to pick two of kind of the most important IS papers that you feel like everyone should read, what would they be? You know, one of the things that I often direct people to, um, especially if they're just sort of having their implementation science knowledge bud, is um, the paper by Jeff Curran, Implementation Science Made Too Simple. And one of the things I love about it, in addition to it's just sort of straightforward approach to implementation um, and sort of understanding, quote, the thing as the thing that's being implemented. I think that had so much staying power, this sort of like colloquial way of talking about pieces of it that resonates and is easy to remember, is that the entire paper is based on a slide he had been, a single slide he had been presenting for years and years. And I think that slide is actually maybe the only like visual or figure within this brief paper. So the reason I like it is because it is such a nice sort of, you know, accessible translation piece for all the things that we tend to talk about within implementation and that um, it jumped from being simply something that he put in nearly all of his presentations, at least most of the ones I saw to being, you know, an article that could reach people in different ways as well. Um, so it was a really nice tool and a simple tool, a well-designed tool, you might say, and one that uh, I think has really resonated with a lot of people. PowerPoint slides worth a thousand words, maybe That's in this right. case, 2,500 words. Right. And for another important paper that I think everyone should read, Per Nielsen's Making Sense of Theories, Model, and Frameworks, Theories, Models, and Frameworks, or whatever it's called, just because Frameworks are so sort of integral to what people do in implementation. And we, of course, have so, so many of them. Isn't it over 100 at last count? So we're, we're probably good. We have enough. But I think just the way that that paper categorizes them, you know, as outcomes frameworks, determinant frameworks, process models, implementation theories, classic theories, I feel like is so useful for someone coming in and just hearing that there's a hundred frameworks out there and going, oh my God, what am I going to do with that? To begin to understand the different uses of different frameworks. Um, so I'd put that one on the list as well. I have a quick follow-up to that. Um, this is one of the questions I'd prepared. What is the minimum number of frameworks that a field needs before it can be called a science? <laughs> one. Uh, incorrect, the one answer is actually one. two. Uh, Sorry. Oh, you mean because they away. need to be, and, and they need to be at war with one another. 
Of course, that's the only way yeah. science has advanced. Yeah, no, that's true. Yep, I, I'm on board. Yeah. At their okay, heart, I, they, at their heart, they need to be basically the same framework too. Right. It, yeah. Yeah, it's all jingle jangle, but we spend 20 years arguing about one it, of them is... has an extra circle around the other framework. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, you know, I have a serious question. If you could go back in time, maybe just when you were, just at the point you're either graduating, graduate school, finishing your internship. So if you could go back to your, what advice would you give to yourself as a young scientist? Hmm. Let's see. I think like, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay. Like sort of worrying about what to, what to do for, you know, next steps. So this has nothing to do with necessarily the field of implementation, but just sort of recognizing that, and again, maybe this is speaking from a position of privilege and being able to expect that things are going to work out. But I found that being immersed in a group of fantastic colleagues, both locally and nationally, can create a sort of momentum, can create a sort of security, can create a sort of fun and enjoyment of just the work and the day-to-day -day and that, that opens doors, that smooths over concerns, and that ultimately like leads to good, impactful, meaningful, values-driven work. I like that. So, so and maybe that about, a, and that it's about who you surround yourself with more than anything. Right. Yeah, I, I like that advice. So not not sort of don't worry, but more find the people yeah. that you have fun doing the work with and focus on that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I mean, it's so important to find people you enjoy working with. That's why I'm doing this podcast. I have a question. I'm curious what you think. What is the best Simpsons episode? Ever? Um, I mean, I think it has to be the Hank Scorpio episode. You only move twice. I, I have to say, how uh, did you call that, Kevin? Kevin knew. I, I, I mean, in our notes, I, I I put that question, and then I was going to correct you if you said any other episode that the correct answer is you only move twice. The Simpsons season eight episode two. Have you ever seen a man say goodbye to a pair of shoes? <laughs> yes, once. It's the absolute funniest line in all of Simpsons ever. <laughs> I don't think that's, I that's even know that. I don't think I even know that episode. Really? I mean, I do think it's fairly like widely regarded to be at least one of the top few, if not the best of all time. Aaron, I spent a full five minutes searching for a ratings list of top Simpsons episodes. This was almost never listed. Really? It's stunning how incorrect the internet can be sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I almost take it for granted that it's always telling me the accurate information, but it's not. Okay, new question. Most overlooked style of beer and why? Most overlooked? By whom? I, I gave you the question. Just we're not, gonna, <laughs> we're not cognitive interviewing this item. This is an item I have. Tell me what is the most overlooked style of beer and why? Classic British mild. Why, do, why would you say that? I would say because it's very difficult to find a commercial example these days, especially, you know, anywhere outside of the UK. Um, and even there, it's maybe not 
nearly as popular as it once was. Um, it is, you know, it runs counter to the sort of like more and more, more hops, more alcohol kind of trends that, you know, we sometimes see, or at least, you know, have seen recently, um, at least in the States. Uh, and it's great and chewy when well done and winds up sort of presenting as more than it is because it is such like a sessionable low ABV beer. Does it have to be on cask? Is that essential for it? I don't think so. Call you had me up till the end. But I, but I don't like things at cellar temperature. <laughs> What's the most overrated beer style? Oh, any sub style of IPA that's come out in the last decade. <laughs> yeah. Now, does that include the Cascadian dark ales? Or the oh, it definitely IPA? does. If, if it doesn't, I need to extend that time period <laughs> to ensure that it does. <laughs> you need to go back in time and kill that style to save the future. <laughs> what all in Rogue Brewing invented the Mogul Ale, their winter ale, which basically was a Cascadian dark ale, but they didn't call it that. Right, they called it a strong ale, right? Yes, yeah, but that was that was the first dark IPA, I think. Yeah, but it wasn't a black IPA. Yeah, true, true. It was not like opaque; like it was just like a dark amber. Yeah, that's true. I just want to point out at this point in the uh, podcast, we <laughs> both, uh, all of us have shown off our excessive. Well, at least you two. Uh, although I'm just nodding along, like I understand, should have far more beer knowledge than other psychology beer oriented podcasts. Podcasts, at least that I've seen, that even claim to be beer forward. So I want to congratulate us on that. <laughs> um, Aaron, it's been uh, fantastic having you. Uh, we, you know, we appreciate your friendship and uh, collegiality and uh, over the years. I think both Mike and I, you know, obviously love you as a friend and also love you as a colleague. It's really, it's just really one of the great pleasures of my life to get any chance to collaborate with you, unlike pretty much all of my collaborations with Mike, which is ironic, I guess. Um, but we wanted to end with one last opportunity for you to just give any shout outs, any, um, you know, praise you you want to give to uh, anyone or anything in the, in the field. I mean, hmm. I'll give a shout out um, just to my co-directors in the different centers that I'm lucky enough to be able to run. So at the UW Alacrity Center that we were talking about first, that's uh, Sean Munson and Pat Arian, um, as well as people like Mike and John Fortney too, um, for the different cores that we have. Um, and at the Smart Center, that's Jill Locke and Eric Bruns and Mike again, um, and other folks who really help that place run and help us to be better than the sum of our parts. It's true that that implementation science podcast is pretty incestuous at this stage in our in our episode creation. Uh, all right, Aaron, this has been great. I'm sure people are going to love it. How can people reach you? What's your Twitter handle? Aaron underscore lion at Aaron underscore lion. All right, everyone, feel free to reach out. With that, I am going to close this one down. Thank you so much. It was a fantastic episode. Thank you to Kevin. Thank you to Aaron. Appreciate everyone listening. And if you have any questions or want to comment to us directly, you can reach me on Twitter at 
at that is podcast. And if you want to reach Kevin, Kevin, how can they reach you? I am also occasionally on Twitter um, as an uh, at least once an hour at at km king underscore psych. All right, thanks so much, and we will catch you next time. Thanks so much for having me on the Bridge Show. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you liked today's podcast, please share it with your friends, colleagues, and research center directors, if they're not Aaron, though they probably are. If you agreed with our comments today, please let others know about it. If you disagreed, then talk about it at your next virtual conference presentation. I guarantee you no one's watching. All of the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful and therefore are not necessarily endorsed by our grant funders or employers. Thanks for listening. On behalf of Kevin King and Aaron Lyon, we'll catch you next time.